It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. You can also hear us on various podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we take you through all the latest regarding the New York Giants and multiple ways for you to interact with us here on the program. You can give us a ring at our regular number, 201-939-4513, 201-939-4513. You could also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, D-O-W. He is at Giants WFAN. Padded practices are well underway, so we'll give you the recap of that. And we also had media sessions with Joe Judge, Sterling Shepard, as well as Saquon Barkley. So a lot to tackle over the next 60 minutes. Paul, how are we doing today? Very well, thank you, Lance. Uh, temperature in the mid-70s. It was by far the most comfortable and beautiful day of the summer and a great day for the guys to be all dressed up in pads and to start actually doing at least a little bit of contact. Yeah, and Joe Judge spoke about whether or not this was a major milestone, whether or not this is something to pretty much bring down compared to the narratives that we're seeing thrown out across the NFL landscape. And I think he did a good job when he spoke to the media putting things in perspective. Meaning, Paul, we can't get too carried away in terms of the initial observations because this is really the first time that guys are getting physical with one another. Unfortunately, you know, we've already seen some injuries across the league. So you want to be careful in terms of how hard you push the players but football's not football without the physicality. And I think like anything else, this is just the next step in the gradual process as we get set for week one. Well, you mentioned a gradual process. The bottom line is on Friday, there will be a intra-squad scrimmage. Uh, that one's not going to be probably as tough or as physical as the ensuing weeks when Judge continues to do those on a uh, weekly basis. But I do believe that, that that's going to be the culmination of the ramp up that we are seeing this week as they finally started to get the pads on. And then week after week after week until we get to September 14th and that opener against the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Giants will just gradually try to get to that point. Look, Joe Judge was very, very careful to tell these guys we understand that you don't want to get guys hurt. You don't want to have things rushed because that's the way to make mistakes. They want to take everything step by step, pay attention to detail, lay the foundation, and at the same time, make sure guys are physically ramping up their bodies to where they're going to be ready for that first game. Well, and that's why, given it's a gradual process, I think some of the biggest takeaways for a padded practice as it gets started with the Joe Judge error is the logistics. And few things that are notable with respect to the pace, Paul, this is a quick 90-minute practice. Joe Judge really likes to try to cram in as much as possible, keep the guys moving, maximize the reps. Players are not wearing jerseys on. Uh, excuse me, they are wearing jerseys, not wearing the names on the back of their jerseys. And his interesting observation when he was asked about that was he wants the players to get to know each other's movements without necessarily having to identify one another. And, you know, that was interesting. We'll hear from Saquon Barkley on that in a little bit. But, you know, these are at least some of the initial observations of how a Joe Judge practice is organized, structured, and so forth. Well, there's one other very obvious thing about a Joe Judge practice. 
He does not like mistakes on the field because when you make a mistake, like jumping off sides, you pay a penalty by having to run a lap after practice. And, in fact, he had everybody running a lap after practice today because he said he didn't like the mistakes and you've got to pay a price for it. And, quite honestly, Sterling Shepard himself said, I understand that. Even though that's a high school and college trick, you usually don't see that in the National Football League. Shepard said, well, if you don't want to run the laps after practice, then don't make any mistakes. You know, guys, I have a question for you. And this is Schmelk, by the way. Hi, everybody. Hello, when, John. When, when, you were, when you were listening to Judge, everyone's making a big deal about how Judge told them to take the names off the jerseys. Judge said at one point during the answer that he didn't have any comment on the names of the back of the jersey one way or the other, and it's been done different ways in different places he's been. So I'm not even positive, and a lot of people are running with it like they know for sure, unless I miss something, which is why I'm asking you guys. Are you sure that that was on his direction? Does he seem to indicate that he didn't have a real big opinion on a one way or the other? Well, he did downplay it when he was asked about that. I agree with you. He wasn't necessarily taking claim to it. I just think in terms of what the Giants have done previously, it is at least somewhat of a noticeable difference. And I liked his answer in terms of whether or not he was campaigning for it, John, or it just came naturally based on them laying out the jerseys and you know how they're going to go about training camp. It's not a bad idea to say, hey, guys should get used to the movements of the opposition and who's lining up next to them because, I mean, when you think about it, and I didn't really give this much thought when I'm observing a game, you really don't have time to look at jersey numbers of even the opposition. I mean, just trying to beat the guys opposite you, and when you're studying film, you're probably picking more up on, is this a guy that's shifty north and south, or is he more of an east-west type of player? So, if anything, I think it falls right into line in terms of what you're looking at out of your teammates in the opposition during the course of a natural game. I have a totally different angle on this one, fellas, because I've been doing this a long time, and I can't tell you how many players and coaches, when I've gone up to them and asked them about their opponent for the upcoming week, especially if it was a man-on-man matchup, they will often cite the opponent by uniform number. They won't necessarily cite him by name. If, if it's not a superstar player and not like an all-pro that everybody knows, you'll hear a coach say, yeah, that 89, he's a tough one. Or an offensive lineman will say, 67, sure. he's pretty good. And so players know the opposition that they're going to go up against in a matchup situation by uniform number. They don't necessarily know them by name number, but I do think the jersey number is incredibly significant to them because, I, like I said, I've heard that identification so many times over the years. Well, but I think that jersey identification, Paul, to your point, is more of when you're at the line of scrimmage, okay, where is the middle linebacker? No okay, question. That's the number. I think, though, once the game progresses and you're actually in a play, I don't know if Saquon, for example, is going to get caught up on okay, this is the guy that I was focusing on. It's more of where are they aligned on the field and reacting from that standpoint. Well, I do think that when you're talking about Barkley, yes. Barkley's got to worry about doing a lot of reaction and a lot of where the hole is instead of looking for somebody's number and saying, oh, I know this guy doesn't move well to his left. However, if he does get into the open field and is matched up one-on-one against somebody with nobody else around, he better know the scouting report that number 21 has a bad left knee and he's missed the last two games. I'm going to make a cut that way because I may be able to break it. So I would disagree with you, Lance. 
Well, once again, I think there's many different ways to view this. I don't think there's any harm from a big picture perspective in not having your name on the back of your jersey because I don't think that's going to have any no, negative no, no. impact on the team. Yeah, I don't care about the, the names. Training camp. I don't. I don't care about the names. Although, from an announcer's perspective, I have to tell you, I did the the live looking show, which is going to be shown on tape delay later on on Giants.com today uh, from practice. We did a full half hour myself and Sean O'Hara again, and as we're trying to discuss the practice as it's going on. It would certainly be beneficial when you have 40 new faces on this roster, okay, of 81 guys on the field. I would much rather they had names on them. I'm not going to lie to you. But does it matter to the players? No. As long as the players have the jersey numbers, that's the key. And I'll I'll tell you something else, too. Scouts and coaches – They're big on the jersey numbers, not the names, because a lot of times when they're watching tape, they just want to say, okay, I'm writing down number 60. I'm writing down number 75. So the numbers are critical. So I'm with you in terms of I don't think the names are to to the football people, but the numbers definitely are. Well, because when you're watching film, the number jumps out much more so than the name. I mean, just in terms of the recognition, the size of the number versus the size of the name. I'm with you from a broadcasting standpoint. Hell, even during a basketball game, I like it when the guys have their names on the back of the jersey. Just as another identification. Sure. If it's not there, hey, guys adjusted, so forth. Even when you're looking at a football player on the field, whether it be from a scouting standpoint or a broadcasting standpoint, once again, the number is the first thing you look for because you have to know, hey, this guy's synonymous with that number, period. I just think the name is more of, once again, if you're up close and personal with the guy, it's nice to have that extra wrinkle. But from a player standpoint, they're certainly not losing sleep over it. As far as the interpretation of... The mindset of the player, I think if you ask different players, it could go various different ways. Some guys will tell you, I look at the number. Other guys will tell you, I study the motion of the player. I think it's to each their own. But it was just an interesting aspect of the conversation, I think, that Joe Judge had with the media today, which is not a conversation, Paul, that you hear very often. At least over the last few years, I don't remember ever having a conversation between the media and a coach where a coach is asked about, hey, why don't the players have their names on the back of the jersey? And when you identify guys or you focus more on the motion of the player versus the numbers. So it was a little bit interesting just to hear a different perspective. No, I, I and it would, look, the Giants, as far as I could tell, remember now, they started putting names on the back of their jerseys in 1970. That was the first year they did it. Fran Tarkenton was the quarterback in those days, uh, and that was the first year the Giants had names on their jerseys. Up until then, it was strictly numbers, and it's been names ever since, and as far as I can remember, it's, you know, the regular jerseys, they've always had names on them. Now, there have been occasions that during practice, don't get me wrong, during training camp, there have been times over the years where they had practiced jerseys without them. I have seen it before, and certainly, you know, that's not an unusual occurrence. But the way that the judge did it to, uh, this week, when they actually had the real jerseys on with no names, that, that caught people's eye, and I understand why. So those are some of the notable logistics, the layout of the land in terms of the first padded practice. Now, Joe Judge was asked about, well, now that you're graduating to padded practices and you've seen the guys a little bit on the field during OTAS type of practices, how would you assess the state of the team as they begin the third phase of training camp? This is what he had to say. Yeah, look, at this point, it's all day by day. Today was our first day in pads. You know, you get used to the tempo of being in shells for a couple days. They throw on the pads. The intensity rises up naturally a little bit. The physicality rises up today. We weren't going live tackling to the ground or anything today, but that'll be added as we go. The biggest thing is to make sure the technique 
and execution doesn't break down just because the pads go on. And I think, you know, initially the guys have to get used to the tempo and the physicality of the plays. You know, I expect our next practice to be cleaner and better executionally than today, but we expect that no matter what they're in. It's just helmet shells or it's full pads. We always expect the mark improvement every day. And I'm not surprised to hear Joe Judge Paul, by the way, focus on the fundamentals because if you go back to his introductory presser, remember, he's got a teaching background. So the fine, the minute details, the very small things, the nuances of the game is something he's always been preaching. So you could tell, even though they're now putting the pads on, the emphasis is still on those little small details that he's obviously keeping close tabs on. You know what I've noticed a little bit here over now, it's what, three practices I've been to? The, the thing that I've noticed is that these assistant coaches are very quick not just to explain something to a guy when he may do it wrong. They will run right out there next to him, and they'll physically show him, especially Mark Colombo. Oh, my goodness. As soon as he sees something, he's hopping on his motorcycle. He's getting right up to that line of scrimmage. He's right in the middle of those linemen, and he's tapping them and saying, hey, look, this is what we're going to do. And he's physically showing him. At one point today, I thought he was probably the fastest-moving guy on the field. I mean, that's how energized he was and so anxious to get over the ball and show a technique that he wanted these guys to learn. So, uh, and I'm seeing that in, in the other positions too, but he's the one who's the most demonstrative about it. And I think this goes back to the whole thing about the primary goal of these coaches is to teach. It's a teaching staff. It's not an instruction staff. It's a teaching staff. And you don't see enough of that, I think, in today's NFL. Well, when we spoke to some of the assistants last week, Sean Spencer preached that. He said that's where he comes from in terms of his Penn State days. He's very interactive. He's very energized. He'll run with guys. And also, Tyke Tolbert, I think, belongs in this conversation. Because remember, the one thing that was notable about Tyke, and he's obviously still doing this, Tyke Tolbert during practice last year, what he made very well known is every time a wide receiver would run a route, and catch a pass, he would run down the sideline, Paul, with yes. them. That was just the theme that he was practicing and preaching on a daily basis. So, you know, once again, I just think Colombo is sort of an extension of that because even Spencer was talking about this last week where he said, I'm going to run with guys on the field to make sure they finish the play so that we're preaching the fundamentals once again. So I, I think that while Colombo may be a little bit more in-your-face type of guy, which is not a surprise, he's a former offensive lineman, we saw a little bit of that at least through Tyke Tolbert last season. Well, I think that Coach Tolbert is just trying to outdo my five miles that I do every morning. That's what I think. You know, I don't know if he's got a counter on his wrist or not, but, uh, you know, he certainly gets his step count in for sure. My money is with Tyke Tolbert. No offense to you, Paul. I'd say he has the slight edge just being around the NFL in terms of running and in motion with all the wide receivers that he's Some of those routes are pretty long. <laughs> they are, but I would say he's built up enough durability over Good the course of his career. I'd give him the slight edge. But we may have to have a race when, of course, the country returns to normalcy between yes. you and Tyktober because those are some fighting words I heard out of you, a little bit challenging. It sounds, oh, sounds, sounds know, like you're a little bit annoyed that somebody's creeping into your territory. Oh, I don't know. my goodness. Uh, you know, it, it'll, be an interesting, it'll be an interesting match, let's just say that. Well, Saquon Barkley also spoke to the media, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with respect to not having jersey names on the back of your jersey. And Barkley was posed the question about from the running back's lens, 
does he understand Joe Judge's mindset that the focus should be on watching your opponent's rhythm and motion as opposed to the number? This is what Barkley had to say on that. I would say it definitely makes sense. I see where you're coming from because um, a lot of times you're just reacting. Uh, but whether it's just watching film, you know, you can see how those guys pop up on film, whether it's an older guy like Martinez or a younger guy like Darnay, um, you can see the, the things that they're able to do and it's forcing you to watch them on film and uh, the way that they react. So when you go into the season, that can carry over, but also just forcing you to uh, get to know your teammates um, and forcing you to go out there and get to know your teammates. Uh, not just just everyone, not just who only focus on the offensive side, but well, everyone who plays a role in special teams, everyone who plays a role in defense and all the other guys coming in, uh, I would say that that's where it plays a, a big role too. So that goes back into the tendencies of your opposition and the teammates that we were talking about earlier. But one of the things I want to piggyback off of, based on what he was just talking about, he brought up Blake Martinez and he brought up Darnay Holmes. And yes, it's still very early, but I would say Darnay Holmes has jumped out a little bit, Paul, in terms of his aggressiveness, his smarts. They did mention last week when we spoke to the assistants, Jerome Henderson, they were going to work him on the inside and the outside. And even Sterling Shepard mentioned that he's been seeing a lot of Darnay Holmes because Holmes has been lining up on the inside and they've had an opportunity to go one-on-one. And, you know, this is an example of maybe a rookie not trying to be timid in the early goings of padded practices because he understands the clock is ticking before week one. Darnay Holmes had a nice diving interception inside the back of the end line uh, in the end zone earlier today, got up and started racing down the sideline. I, I do think he would have had a chance had it been a real game. He might have taken it the other way for a 100-plus yard interception return. It was an impressive play. He has really, in my mind, stood out over the course of these first few practices. I don't think there's any doubt that, again, he's a skill position guy, so you're going to have a better look at him in one-on-one situations when he's going up you know, against these, these opponents. So I, 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 get, I get that. You know, I would expect him, if he's doing well, to, to show up a lot easier than some of the other players. He has, and that's a good thing. And from everything the coaches are saying, they're also very impressed with him, too. Darnay Holmes could very well be, as a fourth-round draft choice, the starting slot corner on this team and one of the steals of this draft. No doubt about it. And here's the bottom line. Right now, there's opportunities in the secondary, specifically at the cornerback position. So I'm sure from Darnay Holmes' perspective, he's saying to himself, you got DeAndre Baker on the commissioner's exemplist. Sam Beal opted out. And James Bradbury is the guy on one side. If you're Darnay Holmes, how could you not be thinking about Paul? Hey, I may not have to be that guy waiting my turn in year number one. There's no reason why I can't carve out a starting spot, especially when they're also still looking for that nickel corner and they're trying out guys at corner and safety. So I can't think of a more attractive opportunity, I guess is what I'm saying, for Darnay Holmes to be thinking about right now compared to the rest of the cornerbacks on the roster. Well, see, just based on size alone, and I also think that, that Ballantyne has looked, looked pretty good. He's been in good position so far during the practices. Hasn't necessarily made all the plays, but he's been in good position. I like Ballantyne. If Baker doesn't make it back, I like Ballantyne to start opposite Bradbury, and I like Holmes to be the starting slot guy. Now, Grant Haley did not work today. He was on the side doing lightly jogging sprints with the training staff, and when asked after practice, Coach Judge said Haley needed more conditioning. Now, all I can say about that is when the coach says you need more conditioning and you're off on the side doing some jogging and running, 
that probably indicates that the coach was not necessarily pleased with your work habits. That's just, I'm just taking a, I'm trying to read into that there because they've been doing conditioning now for the better part of two weeks. I'm not sure how, how a player could suddenly need more conditioning and have to do jogging on the side. Well, listen, you know, Paul, that there's a distinct difference in terms of being in good conditioned shape, and then you put the pads on, and all of a sudden it's a completely different story. Well, how so, is Grant Haley not prepared for this, knowing that there's a job to be won? I, I, I just would say I'm a little bit disappointed. If, if that's all it was, that he needed more conditioning, I'm disappointed that he didn't get his conditioning up to speed. Well, that's more of a reason why Darnay Holmes is taking full advantage of his opportunity because he's very observant of the environment around him, and he realizes, hey, if you got one guy sidelined because of conditioning, you have another guy sidelined because of off-the-field issues, and somebody else who opted out, once again, hey, it's for the taking. Let's not hesitate. So I think it's good to see his energy. We know he's a smart player. We know what he was asked to do at UCLA and known to have that aggressive feel. Now it's a matter of him transferring that to the practice field and also knowing that he doesn't have a preseason game. See, this is the thing. If they're going to decide on a rookie, Paul, winning one of the starting jobs, he's going to have to earn it in practice because he has no games to do that. I understand he's going to have an interest scrimmage game on Fridays, but that's still a very small sample size. So every practice for a rookie is going to be put under the microscope because you have an idea of what the veterans on this team can do. Even if you didn't coach them, you got a good read on them based on what they've done elsewhere. You have some film. You don't have anything of Darnay Holmes on the NFL level. So, once again, it's encouraging to see he understands every single practice is basically a new game for him. And the more games with positive results that he piles up increases his chances to solidify himself as one of the three starting corners. I would agree. So that, once again, to me, is something that has jumped off the practice page when it comes to evaluating the defensive side of the ball. Now, Darnay Holmes has been going up against Sterling Shepard, as we mentioned. Well, the narrative surrounding the offense this year is there's a lot of weapons. There's a lot of versatility. All of those guys weren't on the field simultaneously last year. They're hoping to obviously cross that off the list this year. But Shepard was told that many people look at the Giants and they say the Giants don't have a number one wide receiver. Well, Sterling, what's your reaction to that? I think we're all capable of making plays, and I think that's uh, the only thing that's important. Uh, when it all boils down is uh, can you trust the guy to make a play? Um, and I think that we have three guys that are able to do that. Um, and then another guy that you, that you forgot to mention is, is Evan Ingram. Um, he, he's basically a wide receiver playing tight end position. Um, so I think we have a lot of guys that can make plays. I don't think we're focused on putting a number on any of us. I always find it interesting when we have the debates about the number one guy versus the number two guy. To me, Paul, and this is once again just my opinion, I'm curious your perspective. The one-two conversation to me is much more relevant, I feel, to this fantasy football ideology today in terms of draft value and is a guy going to put up X amount of catches and numbers more so than it really truly applies to the X's and O's of the NFL. If you have multiple guys that you could spread the wealth with 
as long as they're consistently producing and giving the defense something to pay attention to, personally, I don't get too caught up on Golden Tate is 1A and Shepard's 1B or vice versa. You want to have a conversation about Julio Jones and Michael Thomas and who's better to draft? Fine. We can have the conversation about 1 versus 2. As it applies to teams, because we're seeing a lot of teams with a lot of substance, depth, versatility, as long as guys are producing, that to me is the most important aspect. You know what you just did, Lance? You just created the best argument against fantasy football because those people need to care about individual players' stats for their own personal gain. As far as coaches or GMs or guys like us who are trying to evaluate a team, it's about the team's success. And it doesn't matter who gets those individual stats as long as the unit is helping that team to victory on Sunday. And that's exactly the approach that the Giants are taking. I couldn't agree with it more. Again, it's a reason why I detest fantasy football in every way because people just think players are good based on the numbers that they give them uh, you know, in their stupid games every weekend. And listen, I love fantasy football. I'm not going to— Oh, you to, do? I you thought know, you were on my page with that. Well, no, I am. I'm on your page, but I also know how to separate the two. I could say I apply one— rationale and logic to fantasy football. The problem football. is most people don't, Lance. Most well, of people course, just think it's challenging. It's most people think that the fantasy football numbers actually equate to a player's quality on the field, and it is so far from the truth. Well, because the lines have been so blurred. And you know what? I'll actually bring up something which is relevant to what I wanted to get to because if you notice, Shepard also included Evan Ingram's name in that Mm-hmm. soundbite because he said, hey, let's not just talk about the receivers. Let's talk about the tight end. So I was having a conversation on Sirius XM NFL radio the other day, and we were talking about underrated tight ends. And it actually brought into play what you're talking about is how some people get caught up in the fantasy element and others get caught up in what they actually do on the field. So, for example, Dawson Knox who's the Buffalo Bills tight end, Paul, okay? I would consider him an underrated tight end. He only had 28 receptions last season. But you put on the film, and you look at what he does for the Bills' offense, and you look at how he helps the blocking scheme, especially up the field, the second layer, which the Giants learned the hard way in their matchup last season. That's a way of saying, hey, he may not be fantasy attractive, but he's very attractive for what he does within the offense. So there's an example of... Don't get caught up in just the statistical output. Look at the Giants receivers, Paul. How many times did we talk about last season what the receivers do up the field to block for Saquon, right? And then mm-hmm. give him an extra 10 yards. Remember it was the Washington game, I want to say, Sterling two seasons Shepherd. ago, right? And Sterling, we're seeing him hustle up the field to give Saquon an opportunity to turn mm-hmm. a 35-yard run into a 50-yard run. That's right. How do you compute Sterling's fantasy value with respect to that. Where does that show up? You can't. Yeah. That's why people who talk about players based on their fantasy football numbers are fools. But the problem is we have such a fantasy football rage these days that people think that equates to football knowledge, and it just doesn't. And that's exactly why I think Sterling Shepard was emphasizing we're not having a competition to see who's going to finish the year one, two, three. It's a matter of if you want to ask me about the outlook of the Giants offense this season, I think there's a few things you put on your checklist. Number one is, of course, durability, Paul, because the five key weapons were not on the field simultaneously mm-hmm. once last season, okay? You can't go through another season like that. So all of these guys, they only have so much control over that, of course, but the goal is... You want to get multiple games where all five are on the field. Number two, 
You want to give Daniel Jones a reason to spread the wealth this year and not say that I have to rely on player A or this game I have to rely on player B. Hey, if the defense is opening things up for one player and you got to lean on him, hey, that's just the natural flow of a game. But you want to prove that there's enough balance within this offense. And then the third aspect I would throw in, you want guys like Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Darius Slade, and Evan Ingram when he obviously is asked to do it, to prove that they are very effective in blocking up the field for fellow wide receivers and, of course, Saquon. And if you have all three of those elements in play consistently during the course of the season, then I would say we're not getting caught up in who's one, two, or three on the depth chart. The biggest stat, Lance, that is of most importance week in and week out, how many points you score. And it really does not matter, individual statistics. It's about does your unit effectively allow your offense to put enough points on the board to win the game? That's it. And the Giants at times last season proved that they can be very effective in that department. You just don't want it to be Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And sometimes what contributes to that is unfortunately guys in and out of the lineup. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Giants held their first padded practice today. We're recapping some of the highlights, also recapping what transpired when Joe Judge, Saquon Barkley, and Sterling Shepard met with the media. Multiple opportunities and ways for you to interact with us here on the program, 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number, 201-939-4513. You could also head to social media. You could use hashtag GiantsChat. And you could directly interact with us at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. So when Joe Judge was talking to the media, it wasn't just about the logistics of practice. It was also, you know, what has jumped out to him as he watches practice. And I thought it was interesting when he was posed the question, Paul, if you can't get too close to guys and you have to spread them out on the various practice fields because of the medical protocols and the rules and regulations, what he is focusing on, what does he look to observe? Because the way of life for everybody has changed. And, you know, he mentioned that he does sort of script out in his mind before practice starts what he's hoping to focus on. So it may be a certain aspect of the installation of the offense or the defense that they're running on a Monday or a Tuesday. And he says, I've got two or three players in my head. I'm going to pay extra attention to this drill because I'm going to hone in on those matchups. And, you know, it's very interesting. We talk about how we're going to padded practices and what the players are dealing with from an adjustment standpoint. I also find it very fascinating how coaches have had to fine tune how they navigate a practice. Well, the coaches divided up uh, a lot of the drills into two separate groupings because he feels as though he can maybe look at both groupings on a play-by-play basis. In other words, he could stand in the middle, watch the one set of groups, uh, one of the grouping sets, go over and do the play, then quickly turn around and look at the same thing with the other groups. He's had to do this because he's trying to maximize the number of reps that every guy on the roster can get. So, like in the past, many times we've seen they'll run a certain drill or they'll run first-team offense against first-team defense, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now Judge is basically saying, okay, listen, let's take the first-team offense and first-team defense, let's put them on that side of the field and run a drill. At the same time, we're going to run the second-team offense against the second-team defense over on the other side of the field. 
And this way, they can get everybody more reps at practice. That's something that we have certainly seen that we had never seen before. It's an adaptability kind of thing that Judge has done to give the coaches more looks at these guys, to give them a better chance to try to evaluate what some of these guys can do because otherwise if you're just going to run the drill like you usually used to run the drill in years past there's going to be a bunch of players who are never going to get nearly enough of a sample size to uh, to put their wares uh, on display of course especially since you don't have preseason games because i'm thinking back in previous training camps when you know you have four preseason games and you'll clearly have ample time to evaluate the second team the third team and also, when you've had full OTAs and a full training camp, you know, it doesn't matter if you're holding those competitions simultaneously. You just use one field and you rotate guys in on the first and second teams. And we've seen that consistently throughout the course of camp. But I'm sure in Joe Judge's mind, he's saying to himself, I only have 14 padded practices. You've completely eliminated preseason games. If we want to get as much work as humanly possible for the second team and the third team, yeah, we better manage this simultaneously, Paul, or else you're going to get to the end of training camp. You're going to see your starters, but then how the hell do you know the other 25 guys that are going to be on your roster who you may have to play here or there throughout the course of week one? Well, look, here's the bottom line. These coaches have another month or so to try to figure out who they're going to keep and who they're going to put on the practice squad and who's going to get a ticket home. It is not an easy task. Quite frankly, Dave Gettleman doesn't have a very easy task either because obviously he's part of this decision-making process. And he's only one person. And I guarantee you that after practice, Gettleman's looking at that tape too. And and even Judge said, what we do is we're going to go inside after we're done and they make every one of the groupings watch the film of everybody so that you don't just learn off of your own mistakes when you watch them back, but you're also looking at the other groupings' plays to see what you could pick up from them as well. I mean, they're trying everything they can, Lance, to maximize this evaluation process. It is just not an easy situation. Well, and speaking of that, on a related note, I also think that this is why, uh, granted, there's usually a number of transactions during training camp, okay? So I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but at least from the Giants' perspective, there's been a lot of transactions, a lot of movement, okay, over the last few days, Paul. So I also think this is an example of, you know, the Giants, the level of patience for the coaching staff. If guys are not showing it in practice, hey, you know, we're going to bring in somebody else and see whether or not we think they can immediately contribute to our team in week one. So I think that's also another thing that everybody has had to adjust. You just don't have the same luxuries to buy time with players that you normally do. So you really have to make a relatively quick statement. If you're a player and you're on the bubble, hey, you got to show me something in the first two practices, so Paul, because the coaches, the executives, they're already going to be moving on to the next guy on their wish list. Lance, we've already seen in the last week since they started getting it on here on the field as a full 80-member complement, there have already been a number of small moves on the back of the depth chart. And then this morning, Chandler Catanzaro, the former Jets kicker, who had retired last year but had come out of retirement and looked as though he was going to go into camp as the lead candidate to be the Giants kicker because he had been the only one in camp. Well, he gets his walking papers this morning. 
he did not particularly practice very well. And what did they do? They had a short leash on him, and now he is gone. Joe Judge thanked him for his time, said it was appreciated him coming out of retirement. We like the guy, but he's gone. They've decided to make a move. And the reports, as you guys already have read many times on the Internet, the reports are that uh, Graham Gano, the former Panthers kicker, would be the guy, uh, although nothing's been announced at the time of this taping, would be the guy uh, who would get the next shot. I mean, it's it, like they said, NFL, not for long. <laughs> you know, you, there's no patience here. You can't have patience, Lance. You just can't. Absolutely. It's just not a luxury like it was. And as you mentioned, the Giants in their release did say Judge did not announce a replacement during his media session call, though numerous published reports have the Giants soon adding former Panthers kicker Graham Gano. This is all pending a physical, pending COVID testing. Remember, it's important to emphasize that. And this is why we do this more often on the show, even throughout the course of free agency, because of the uncharted territory this offseason and not having the same access that you do for players. Nothing is official until multiple check marks are made, specifically the physical and the combination of the COVID testing. So it's important to emphasize this is all based on reports and nothing whatsoever official in terms of the Giants' perspective. However, with that being said, Paul, Graham Gano does have a connection to A, Dave Gettleman, because they were together in Carolina, and B, Thomas McGahee was Gano's special teams coach in Carolina in 16 and 17. So here's another example, because we're talking about themes and how you have to constantly deal with change. Well, the other theme we've seen, seen this offseason is what? It's no coincidence GMs, coaches, bringing in players who they've had previous work with. Well, if indeed this Gano signing becomes official, it's not a surprise that they're turning to somebody that the front office knows as well as the coaching staff. How about a more painful Giants connection for Graham Gano? Oh, He's I the guy who go. hit the 63-yarder in Carolina in 2018 on the final play of the game to thwart what had been a sensational Eli Manning fourth quarter and comeback. Uh, or should I say, I, that wasn't even a fourth quarter. It was a fourth quarter comeback by Cam Newton as, as they came back as Eli had just torn the Panthers to ribbons. Looked like the Giants were going to be in a laugher. And and then some some unfortunate events happened. And before you know it, Gano's hitting a 63-yard field goal, which ties for the second longest successful field goal in NFL history and made him one of only seven kickers in the history of pro football to have hit one from 63 or beyond. Now, of course, after that, he suffered a fractured fibula uh, later on that season and did not kick last year. Spent the whole year rehabbing. And, you know, if you looked at his Instagram this past week, he was posting video that, you know, he's kicking and he's ready to go and he wants a job. Well, maybe he just found one. We'll have to wait and see. Well, the bottom line is he's a proven veteran. He's got a strong leg, to your point. And right now, the Giants are in need of a kicker. So if it all works out, it certainly would be a positive addition and somebody that has dealt with various elements throughout the course of his career because while Carolina is not MetLife Stadium, okay, and it's not the same winds and the weather, I get it, Carolina is an outdoor stadium. So he's at least used to, Paul, kicking in the elements, which yeah, I think but, is important as opposed to a kicker coming from a domed environment. It's a little bit different when you're kicking eight games in the comfort of an enclosed area as opposed to you're used to spending half your season in the outdoors. All right. You know, Lance, how I am about field conditions. I survey them around the league all the time, and Carolina's natural grass surface is one of the top grass surfaces probably – 
top three, if not higher, in the league. That's how good that grass surface is. I mean, you could go there in October even, middle of October, and it's like it wasn't even played on. It is pristine. It is a marvelous natural grass surface. And, and in all honesty, it's a kicker's dream. By the way, as a side note with respect to the connection, I want to go back to something that Thomas McGahee said last week. And I saw some people maybe reading a little bit too much into this, but McGahee talked about his relationship with Joe Judge because of the fact that Joe Judge is of a special teams background, right? He was a special teams coordinator. He was the wide receivers coach the last year in New England, but special teams is his MO. And McGahee was asked about, well, how unusual it is because, you know, normally when McGahee's been on previous staffs, the head coach, Paul, has had a defense or an offensive background. So I guess not that the coach is not interested in special teams, but you're maybe used to running the ship and not necessarily having maybe as much input because mm -hmm. that's not, you know, the strong suit or the background of the head coach. Here now you have the dynamics of Thomas McGahee, who's been invested in special teams his entire career, and Joe Judge, who is the same. And McGahee talked about how it's been a very smooth transition he welcomes what Joe Judge brings to the table, and he indicated that, you know, Joe Judge is very welcoming of what McGahee has done in the past, his philosophy, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is if Gano is brought in, yes, there's a connection to Gettleman, but I'm sure McGahee certainly can speak very highly of a kicker he knows, and, you know, that to me is another example of Joe Judge embracing the input from his assistants, even those that may come from a similar background, such as special teams? Well, I think the one of the things that, you know, McGahee really tried to stress was that, you know, he and Judge just seem to be working very much in unison. I, I think it's because there's a mutual respect from these guys. Yeah. Because I, I think when Judge first got here, one of the things that we had heard through the grapevine is that he was impressed with the Giants special teams of recent years. And McGahee's been here now. I guess it's his third, third or fourth, third season, I believe. Third, yep. uh, Now that he is the special teams coordinator in his second tenure with the Giants. And, and Judge, you know, he would know. He would know a good special teams unit when he sees it. And his impression of the Giants the last couple of years was very high. So it really should not come as a surprise that because of that respect coming from outside the building, that when Judge got here, he would feel very, very comfortable working with him and, of course, assistant Tom Quinn. And here's the other aspect. McGahee, which you just hit on, has been around the league for a very long time, okay? You know, let's not make it sound as if he's a new kid on the block. You have to go back to 2001 was his first opportunity on the NFL level. And, oh, by the way, McGahee was also a former player. He was on the practice squad for a few teams, but, you know, his ties to the NFL goes back to the mid-'90s. So although we talk about the coaching platform is massive because there's so many coaches and you do the math – it's pretty much a small world, Paul, and either you met the guy directly or you know of the guy through another person. I guarantee you Joe Judge had a very strong rundown of what Thomas McGahee brings to the table well before he was in thinking about putting together and finalizing his coaching staff. I just can't say enough at this point in time, and we're only a couple of weeks in, so let me put the brakes on it, Lance, but I can't say enough about this entire staff. We've said it now for months and months and months, and now that they're on the field, we're starting to see it. These guys are teachers. 
it was by design. It was a good design. And I I just I expect the Giants to be a better team, whatever their record is, and I also expect this team to show marked improvement as the year goes on. Because if these teachers are going to be effective in what it is that they do, the Giants will learn from their mistakes and we will see improvement on a week-to-week basis. Well, here's something else that I want to bring up, and I'm glad you touched on that because this, to me, ties right in. I was having a conversation about why is it the New England Patriots, Paul, seem to overcome injuries, pull guys off the street, take them from the practice squad, and fill in voids, it seems, better than others, or strategize and find ways to win games when you lose key personnel, which clearly they're going through right now with multiple players opting out, or you know, even a year when Tom Brady served a four-game suspension in 2016, and they go 3-1, and one, and they started Jimmy Garoppolo and Jacoby Brissett, right? They got a pretty strong track record, okay? I know I'm stating the obvious, but let's just get that out. So I was having a conversation, and the one thing that New England is so effective in doing, and the reason we're bringing up the Patriots is because this is where Joe Judge comes from, and of course Patrick Graham, the emphasis that Bill Belichick, Paul, puts on his coaching staff to coach the entire team. And what I mean by that, and once again, this may be stating the obvious, but every team's not necessarily doing this. The way you approach Tom Brady is the way, Paul, you approach the 10th guy on the practice squad. That's how you make a well-rounded team because you know the 10th guy on the practice squad at one point could very well be on the 53-man roster, and he's going to get into a game, and he's going to have to know the ins and outs of whatever side of the ball he's on. That's what New England's emphasis has been under Belichick for decades. And the fact that Judge is coming from that mindset, that is encouraging because he's watched what Belichick has preached. He understands the emphasis of making sure the same passion you put into the starting offensive line, Paul, is the same passion you put in to the swing tackle or the eighth guy that's going to dress and may not even get one snap in, may just be a special teamer. That is what has separated New England from the rest of the pack. And the fact that now the Giants have jumped into that pool and are getting an extension of that, it's going to be very interesting to see if Joe Judge can effectively implement that here with the Giants. Would now be a good time to remind everybody out there that Joe Judge has three Super Bowl rings and two national championship NCAA rings. The guy has five, count them, five championship seasons under his belt. And I don't need to hear that, oh, you're only a special teams guy or an assistant special teams guy or only a wide receivers guy. No, 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 no. When you have been a part of champions that frequently, you pick up enough that you have a very detailed understanding as to how you have to do or what you have to do to get there. So let's not make any mistake. Joe Judge is very deliberate in what he wants from this team because he knows the roadmap to success. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You can also chime in via Twitter. Hashtag Giants Chat at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He's at Giants W-F-A-N. Let's open up the phone lines as we move along here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. And Charlie joins us from Portland, Maine. What's happening, Charlie? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Hi. Hey, Paul. I I, I got a question for you. You're always saying, you know, for pass rusher, we really would like to have a Batman. 
We got a lot of Robins, but we don't have any Batman. Right. Why isn't that the same thing for wide receiver? We don't have the Batman. We have a lot of Robins. Wouldn't you rather, wouldn't the Giants rather have a number one wide receiver like Plax, like uh, Odell, like Jones, like Thomas, than to what we have now? And I know what we have now is what we got, and I know they can still be a good offense with it, but wouldn't you rather have that Batman as a wide receiver a number one? Absolutely not. And it's because it's a lot easier to create an effective passing game without a Batman than it is to create an effective pass rush without a Batman. It's really that simple, Charlie. See, Charlie, we've had this conversation before, so I'm going to revisit the archives because nobody likes beating a dead horse better than you. And I posed this question to you about the San Francisco 49ers who made the Super Bowl last year, just to refresh your memory. Who is Batman in San Francisco's receiving core? Yeah, well, they didn't win the Super Bowl now, did Whoa, they? Oh, see, you know, you got an answer for everything. <laughs> I give you a team that makes the Super Bowl and is the best team in the NFC record-wise and statistically is yeah. one of the most balanced teams, and your answer is, well, they didn't get the job done. I'm sorry that they only well, played three and a half quarters worth of good football in February. Well, My sincere apologies. Lance, I'm going to make this easy for you. Charlie, something can you can relate to. One of the greatest okay. teams of all time, the 1986 Super Bowl champion New York Giants under Bill Parcells. Who was the Batman wide receiver on that team? Who? They didn't need it because they had Bavaro. Oh, no, 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 no. Who was the Batman receiver? And quite frankly, Bavaro, who barely reached 1,000 yards that year, only caught four touchdown passes. He was not a Batman receiver. He was an outstanding all-pro tight end, but don't tell me he was a Batman receiver because this is a guy who was who was the third down key for Sims over the middle many, many times to get first downs. He was not going for 25, 30-yard touchdowns. You know why? Because guys like Phil McConkie, Stacey Robinson, Lionel Manuel, Bobby Johnson, those guys, those guys, okay, Emmanuel was hurt much of the year, okay, those guys got it done, and on the other side, what did you have? You had a bunch of Batman pass rushers. Come on, Charlie. If you can't relate to that, then you haven't been watching football very long. Well, and here's another no, example. I, See, I, I'm going to bring it back more to recent <laughs> stuff. I mean, Paul had to go to Well, I'm just trying history. to go to something well, that he can relate to, Lance. I understand that. Well, you know, trying to get him yeah, to relate to anything at this point is a lost cause, Paul. You should know better. The 86, yeah, but the 86 team was really heavy on Joe Mars, too. And maybe that's what we're going to do, too. Well, but that's all right. But but that's part of the plan, Charlie. Part of the plan is to go heavy on the run game, establish power football, and just have a generic passing game that can be efficient and effective. You don't need a Batman to do that. Well, and Charlie, that goes back to my point about the Niners. Yeah. Yeah, well, you look at Dallas. Dallas had... They got George Kittle. Dallas had Elliott, right? No, Dallas well, had Elliott, but they, they had a bad talking about San Francisco. Cooper. I know, but I'm talking about What are we Dallas. talking about? I'm compl- are you understanding, Paul? Is he speaking English? Because now I'm confused. I'm talking about the Niners. <laughs> no, He's lost some random guys from the street. What is going Francisco. on here? I'm talking about Dallas, who was a running team, who was the best offense okay. last year. They had a Batman wide receiver, too. They His did. Yes, Cooper. you're right. They had Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. That's a okay. nice one-two punch. So let's not use so them as I an example. We're I'm talking about is, Paul and I's point is that the fact that 
Look at the Niners, okay? No, Forget the 1986 Giants at Bavaro. You had George Kittle, who was the number one guy in the passing game, who was an excellent blocker, and you had one of the best rushing attacks in the NFL. And they did not have Batman at the receiver position. Debo Samuel emerged late. Emmanuel Sanders, very good players, but nowhere near Batman territory. So the bottom line is it can work depending on how you structure yeah. your offense. So yeah. you look at the Giants. They have Saquon. They have Evan Ingram. I agree with you, Lance. I agree it can work. But what I'm saying is if you went up to Joe Judd and said, if you could have this guy as your number one receiver for, like, nothing money-wise, nothing, would you take him? Would you rather have a number one than to have a bunch of number twos? You know he would say, yes, I would. That's all I'm saying. And you guys would, too, if you had that choice. That's all I'm saying. Well, but who exactly am I getting for nothing right now on the open market here? Lance, Lance, let, let him go. Charlie, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you another time. We're not getting anywhere with you on this. You've repeated this argument so many times, and quite frankly, sometimes you're just being very ridiculous. And I try to give you the benefit of the doubt. I try to reason with you sometimes, and occasionally, occasionally you make sense. Today you're not making any sense. Paul DeTito has seen the light. It took you so long. August 17th at 2.52 p.m. Eastern, DeTito has seen the light when it comes to Charlie in Portland, Maine. Paul, I've never been so proud of you in my life before. And I don't know if I'm going to repeat that phrase, but just soak it up today, will you? It's so good to see you come to the dark side for once. It's such a pleasure. He, Welcome aboard. Thank he you for the He was just so out of bounds, so out of bounds, and just refused to even recognize that. It was just, it was sad. Charlie, you're better than that, man. Yeah. Come on. All right. Hey, uh, giving one examples. other thing, Lance. Sure. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know how much more time. We're kind of running out of time here. I wanted to make sure that everybody We're fine. understood. No, we got enough time that to hear the what Giants, you guys say. Absolutely. The Giants did announce the signing of former Ravens defensive tackle Dalen Mack, former second-round draft pick. This dude is like 340 pounds. You talk about a plugger in the middle of the line. Now, they've got Austin Johnson. Okay, and they've got Tomlinson, and they've got Dexter Lawrence, and now they're throwing Dalen Mack up front. That's a lot of beef now in this rotation, and I don't know, you know, how Dalen Mack is in terms of his health because he's he's come off some significant leg injuries, and that's one of the reasons why the Ravens cut him, and then the Lions, I believe, brought him in for a quick look see, and they only had him in for a yep. couple of days, and and now he's out there again. But this is a former second round draft choice, who is one. Big, big clogger in the middle of a, of a 3-4 defense. Uh, an interesting, Well, he was a fifth-round pick, Paul, player. just it's important to note. He wasn't a second-round oh, was he round, a five? Rounder. I'm yeah, sorry. Five. Yeah. And that's, that's my bad. I, I know he was highly well, regarded. Well, he was still drafted, school, though, I mean, maybe, if that's your point. Maybe maybe he, he might have lost some, uh, some draft stock as a senior, so I appreciate you uh, correcting me on that. I do know at one point in his college career he was – thought of much higher than that but he's a he's a big big dude he's a hog molly for sure no doubt about it yeah he was a fifth round pick in 2019 by the ravens and as you mentioned he was put on ir in november so he only appeared in one game and he did not record a tackle still a very small sample size in terms of his nfl career and you're right the lions did 
try to bring him in. Unfortunately, he did not pass through with the physical, and now he's being brought into the Giants. He absolutely fits the bill in terms of what you're looking for size-wise in a defensive tackle, and he's another guy that's going to compete, and we'll see how things play out. But, you know, this is another example of the Giants are looking for other options, and they know that it's important to have some depth, especially if Patrick Graham is saying we're going to have multiple fronts, we're going to have multiple looks, you want to be able to rotate your defensive linemen. So if he proves he's durable and healthy, it'll certainly be interesting to see how that pans out. Let's try to squeeze in a few more callers here as we take you up till the top of the hour, 201-939-4513. Al is in Virginia, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Al? What's going on, Lance? Paul Gino. Uh, great show. Hello, uh, Al. Time. I'm so glad you were able to get in. Nice to hear a different voice. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was just listening, and, and Charlie's crazy. I, you know, we got Shep. We, we still got Tate, right, as a wide receiver. We got Ingram. I think our receiver core is going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. You know, uh, I'll predict that. Hopefully, we'll have a we'll have a season this year. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, there's well, a so tremendous far, amount so of good confidence with the around the NFL. Calls. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And right now, and I, everybody and I will tell you is this. following. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, don't don't count out the fact that uh, Coleman has looked really sharp coming back off of his his knee injury. I mean, you know, Lance, you you. You you gotta you gotta admire this guy's gumption because he's had a lot of adversity early in his career, and he continues to fight back. And he's running out there like a deer on the field. I mean, he looks as quick as ever. Well, I've been very fond of Corey Coleman, and I'm hoping that you know everything is finally put together for him because he certainly has worked hard. And this is a former first round pick. Okay, there's talent there. It's just once again the unfortunate feeling of the injury bug that has haunted him. So if he can carve out his health and, number two, carve out a role as that fourth wide receiver, you can do far worse than Corey Coleman as your fourth wide out on the depth chart. So, you know, that's absolutely going to be an encouraging sign if he can get back on the field and prove that he can show some of those flashes we saw two years ago. And appreciate the phone call, Al. Thanks so much for weighing in about the receiver core. As far as just real quickly about, you know, the optimism of the season, even Saquon Barkley and Sterling Shepard were asked about that today. And once again, everybody's following the protocols. There is, I think, only about 15 players league-wide on the COVID-19 reserve list. So, you know, so far, so good. We're not getting ahead of ourselves. We know there's going to be some challenges ahead, but right now, Paul, it seems as if the teams, the players, everybody is taking this seriously. They understand that it's not easy, but as I've always said, the true test is going to come once everybody starts heading on the road. Yeah, I mean, look, here's the bottom line. No matter what we say or what the coaches say now in the middle of August, it's going to be in the middle of September that those words carry a lot more weight. No doubt about it. Let's head back to the lines. Scott is in New Mexico, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Doing all right, Scott. What's on your mind? Uh, well, first of all, I kind of disagree with Charlie in so far as what he was saying in regards to the receivers. Because what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was equating speed with being a Batman receiver, and people like Michael Johnson on New Orleans and 
They're mm-hmm. not burners, but they're considered to be one of the best receivers. So I, I think he was getting in a little bit stuff, in my opinion anyway. So you don't have to be necessarily fast to be a great receiver. Ask uh, Steve Largent. Uh, my question to you is this, and it's more addressed to you, Paul, but Lance, please feel free to chime in. You made the indication that this coaching staff is a teaching coaching staff. And my problem with that is you have to put a team together, so you have to evaluate talent. You can teach on your way of evaluating talent, but unless you can put players who can play football on the football field, no matter what you teach them, because we tried to teach players last year like a DeAndre Baker, and he never got it. And I know this is a different coaching staff, but at the end of the day is evaluation of talent, the kind of talent you have, is going to determine how good a football team you are. And I just wanted to get both of your opinions on that. Which is the more important prerequisite, in other words, for uh, a winning football team? And and since we're short on time, I'll take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks again. Thanks, Scott. I will take a coaching staff who teaches guys to outshine their talents any day of the week. If you want to give me a team of talented guys who don't necessarily take teaching well and just go out there and rely on their skills, I'm going to push that one to the side every time and take the less talented team that is going to go out there and overachieve every single week. Yeah, I think you need guys that buy in to what the coaches are selling. I don't think if you have that, it's going to be an uphill battle because if you have all the talent in the world, if you're not applying it to the field, number one, you know, the same work ethic, then you're really going to be pretty much staying status quo. So I think you need the guys that may have the lesser talent but are open to coaching and open to working hard, and you could certainly see that on the field. I'll give you a perfect example. Chase Blackburn, to me, encompasses what we're talking about. Chase Blackburn, Paul, wasn't the most talented Giants player, but he had a hell of a work ethic, and if you remember, when he joined the Giants late in that, I think, 2011 season, memory picks off Aaron Rodgers, and he just came off the couch about three mm-hmm. days prior. Well, mm-hmm. you got coached up, you knew the system, you make plays. So I'm in agreement with you. Let's head back to the lines. Russell is in Missouri. Russell, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Hey, what's going on? So what Charlie said, I think he just just said it. And I agree with what he was saying, but I understand what y'all are saying. So I'm, I'm, I was a middleman listening to both. What Charlie's saying is, if you could have like a, a, a Julio Jones or something like that, of course Joe Judge is going to take a Julio Jones. That's a whole of fame. But what we got now, we got to work with. That's what y'all were saying. Like, hey, I'll take my receivers for now and work with them. But if a Julio Jones say he want no, if he's a free agent and a giant sign, y'all won't be mad. But let's work with what we got now. I agree with both both sides. He just said it wrong. So I, I agree with what he was saying. And, Paul, I agree with what you were saying. So he you know what, my man? Of, part of the problem with Charlie yeah. is a lot of times he says it wrong. Yeah, he says it wrong. So, and then, um, what y'all was saying, just like the last quarter, he said, what you want, coaching or, I mean, what are you saying? You, I mean, of course I want to teach you to coach, but some people you can't teach. I love what Joe Judge is doing, making them run laps. That's what we do in the military. Make a mistake, go run the lap. That <laughs> I don't know why they stopped doing that. That's discipline. That's what I love to hear. Like that pumps me up for the season. I'm loving. I'm loving what this guy's doing. He's installing his coach on the team. That's great. But that's what I wanted to get on there. I haven't been on there in a long time. Paul, that P dot was going on. Lance was going on. I'm glad y'all stayed for the COVID nineteen. But that's what Charlie was trying to say. He's like, if you can take a Jerry Rice or Julio Jones, of course y'all going to say yeah. But let's see what we got now because you know Sterling Shepard does have an injury history. Ingram has an injury history, so 
everything looks good, but let's see where the pads go on and when they play a really season game. Because, I mean, has Ingram ever had a full season yet? No, he's had a 15-game season. 15-game season, then he got hurt. Clemens still a shepherd. He was hurt last year from concussions. So we got to see what's going on. And that's what Charlie was basically saying. And we had an a, a receiver. But it doesn't matter to get an A receiver because he didn't get hurt. Because remember, we had Odell. He was hurt. Of course. Well, <laughs> so, listen, nobody's bulletproof. <laughs> Nobody wears armor that's going to protect them 100%. There's no doubt about that. And the other thing, Russell, is, listen, I get where he was coming from. It's a hypothetical, though. Okay? There is no carrot yeah. dangling out there on the free agent market right now for the Giants to go out and yeah. grab. So it really it defeats the purpose. I mean, we could sit here and evaluate the team that Joe Judge has to work with, or we could have the fairy tale conversation. And I get it. The fairy tales are fun to talk about and debate and this and that. The bottom line is we're living in reality right now. Training camp's here. Let's get ready for week one. And I agree with you, and that's what I'm saying. Let's work with the players we got. Let's see what happens. Let's see where the season goes. Let Joe Judge do his thing, and I'm loving what he's doing. Absolutely. Y'all be safe out there. You as well, Russell. And listen, thank you for your service. Stay safe as well. Greatly appreciate you weighing in here on Big Blue Kickoff Live as – we always, it seems to need about three or four people to make sense of what Charlie says. It's unbelievable. It's the gift that keeps on giving. 100% consistency across the board. With that being said, that is going to wrap things up for us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. A reminder, we are up and running weekdays 2 p.m. Eastern because of the change of the training camp schedule. But our number has returned to normal, 201-939-4513. Stay locked to Giants.com, of course, for all the latest. Paul, always a pleasure going back and forth. Look forward to doing it again in the future. Will do, Lance. Be well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. We'll speak to you on Tuesday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live.